This morning's passage is found in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. We are um, trucking along. We only have a few more James discussions left. And I, I can't recap the whole letter, but I want to just draw our attention to this, I think, a theme of James. And that is this. Um, every, every human has this need. We we're made with this need. We're going to talk more about this as we go, but we all were made to be connected to God. That's, that's our design. And after the fall, we were disconnected. And so the Old Testament is allowing for that reconnection through physical things, like the, the sacrifice, the sacrificial system and, and worship, etc. But there's this prophecy in the, in, the, in the end of the Old Testament that says one day, someday, the law will be on the heart of God's people. And that's what we see happen, right? In the New Testament, when Jesus ascends and his spirit comes, it's a fulfillment of that. The spirit comes on all of his people. And so Christians are now connected to God. We have the beginning of what we were designed for, the first fruits. Um, and so for James, he uses the language of the implanted word. He's using that same concept. But what he's, what he's doing in this letter is he's saying, are you aware of this superpower you have. I mean, that's really my language of what he's saying. It makes it nicer. Can you imagine getting this superpower? You can lift anything, okay? And you walk out, and you just can't believe this amazing superpower, and someone's stuck under a car, and you start calling, like, 911, or you start, like, asking neighbors for a jack. Like, you can just walk over and lift the car. And so here's why I say that. James can't believe that we've been given this power of the gospel, and yet we're still living out of our worldly methods. The, the Christians he's writing to are not loving each other. They're not caring for those that are in affliction. They're not using this power of the spirit. They're rather living out of the flesh, which leads to not only boring Christianity, but really sad and dis, dysfunctional Christianity. And so he's calling us, to wake up from the sin pattern he's been mentioning the entire time of double-mindedness. That being said, this is a really harsh passage. So be ready. It's going to punch us in the mouth. There are two people in this room that I hope will be in this room. There's the one that's sort of like, I already know. So I'm, I've reminded you in the past, like you're the, you're the child who knows you've done wrong and the parent's still getting on to the other child. You're that child, okay, that's fine. But you still need to grow. So we're going to lean in and listen, right? But if you're the child that still insists that you're not doing anything wrong, then James's harshness is for you. So we're all going to be sort of weeping at the end of this text. So with that in mind, don't worry. I have a really funny illustration to lift you up. So be ready for that. But let's listen to the word of God and ask the spirit to join us in understanding these words. Chapter 4, 1 to 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's of no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, you've rescued us, and in our being rescued, we so often still cling to worldly methods. Lord, we are double-minded so often. Maybe we're even slightly afraid of what it would look like for your gospel to take true hold of our hearts. Holy Spirit, teach us to trust you. Teach us to lean into you. Father, teach us to draw near to you. So I pray this morning these would be the things you teach us. Amen. Throughout this letter, James has been discussing double-mindedness over and over again. And the thing he did most recently before this passage was he said, how can you out of the same mouth praise God and curse a person? And the idea being, if I were the, if I were the recipient of a compliment, that, that then I notice you curse someone else or use that same language, it would make you wonder how pure that was, right? And that brought to my mind, and I haven't done this in years. If you were at Grace when we first came, I used Seinfeld after Seinfeld's illustration. Remember that old timers? Well, here we go, Seinfeld. One of my favorite scenes in Seinfeld is when they've gone up to see the baby, you know this episode, there's this baby one of their friends has, and, and um, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but we never see the baby, that's the good news, but we're told the baby is not the most beautiful baby. In fact, apparently, comically, they look and they kind of wince. I don't know why. But Elaine shows up to this home, like up in the Hamptons or somewhere great, and she comes in, and then there's this pediatrician who's there to help with the baby and has been invited up. And uh, the pediatrician is talking and then looking at the baby and says, well, Elaine, you're quite breathtaking. And she just beams. And she can't believe this compliment. And as the scene goes on, and she can't believe that maybe there's a connection, maybe this man is in love with her, who knows what's going to happen. He says, and this baby is breathtaking. And she's like, wait a minute, what? Um, a little bit later on the deck, she's kind of goading him a little bit, like, you, you know, you said uh, the baby, you know, this house is beautiful, that meal is, you know, she's trying to see what he thinks is beautiful. Finally, she says, and that baby is ugly, and he goes, like, what? She's, no, 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 I don't mean that. Um, and she kind of corrects herself, and finally she says, it's just that you called me breathtaking, and you called the baby breathtaking. And he says, Elaine, sometimes you just say the thing that makes the person feel good at the time. Who's he talking about? breathtaking. What a powerful, I le- that's, if someone could look at you and say, you're breathtaking and mean it. The Bible teaches and we believe that God is breathtaking. We believe that, you know, one day, someday, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and we will not just be forced into submission. We will find him breathtaking. And what the Bible teaches in our passage is that same Jesus whom we find to be breathtaking finds you to be breathtaking. He loves you. And even as I say those words, I want you to pay attention to your doubt. 
Did you feel it? I want to believe that. I think I believe that. And that's what our passage is going to teach us. Because it's true that a breathtaking God finds us breathtaking, <clears throat> we can draw near to him with everything. Three things we're going to look at. I went ahead and did all letter P. Passions, position, and process. Um, let's just look at these three things that are all going to show us how we can better draw near to the Father as we find him breathtaking. Uh, passions. I'm gonna, this really goes in order. We only have ten short verses. I'm going to try to cover most of them. But James starts off with this very quick question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And it's apparent that these are real things. That the audience who receives these, these, this letter would have known what he's talking about. Now whether that's particular like church-wide things going on, commentators aren't sure. But nonetheless... They, they had to acquiesce, like, yes, we have fights, we have quarrels. And, and just as I begin, I want to ask you, do you recognize your quarrels? If I were to say, what causes fights and quarrels among you, would you have your mind go somewhere? I think in our culture, we've become so accustomed to sort of living with contention, especially this past year, and especially with social media, that there are fights and quarrels we're in that we don't even really recognize as such. And so I think the beginning thing we have to do, as, and it's going to be repeated throughout this entire discussion, is we need to pay attention to the fact that we certainly do have quarrels and fights. And, and typically, they're among the people we care for the most. If you talk to a couple and say, who do you fight with the most, they're going to say, my spouse. Like, can you imagine a fight, couples, that you've had and horrible and you're super sad and you, and you ask for forgiveness and everything. And then if you ever did that at work, with your boss, you're fired, right? Like, you can't, a policeman pulls you over, you don't quarrel the way you do with your spouse. So there's something about our loved ones that, that somehow draw these deeper places of us to fight and quarrel. And certainly the body of Christ is no different. And so the question that he asks, though, is this, what causes them? What leads to them? And he answers it, is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. A lot of commentators see these descriptions of passions and, and um, coveting and um, like longing, desiring, and say, see, these are all wrong things. You shouldn't have desires. You shouldn't have these things. And I would disagree. Um, I think what James is clearly saying is your desires, your passions are not the problem. It's what they're looking for to solve them, to, to answer them, to feed them. Now, where do you find that? He says this. I want to just read starting at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the question before us is, is the coveting and the desiring the problem or the fact that when you don't have the things you want, the result? See, do, you, do you see the options? And, and so you could argue you should never covet and you should never desire. And certainly I would agree biblically you don't covet when you understand what that word actually means. The problem with coveting is not that you have a desire, right, in, in the 10th commandment. It's that you're replacing God with that desire. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. It's a completely irrational thing to want. You have your own wife. Why would I covet my neighbor's wife? Because there's something spiritual in you that makes you think I can feed that if I had that. It's not a logical meeting of a desire. It's a spiritual urge. And Romans 7, Paul uses that very 
commandment, he uses the Greek word epithemia, which here is the desire in verse 2, meaning a desire that has left its bounds. The desire itself is fine, but you're now using wrong things to meet it. And where do we, I think, why do I say that the desire is okay? Because he says, you do not have because you do not ask. What's, what's James teaching? Like, do you know your desires? Um, it is a very hard thing to think about our needs. We're really not good at that. Like, what do you need right now? As children, we're taught and told through psychology that the more your, your upbringing was secure and healthy, the more your needs were met and the more you're free to recognize those needs. But for many people who grew up in situations where those weren't met, they struggle greatly to ever name their particular desires and needs. They simply just go get them. We call that being an orphan, don't we? And that's what the Bible describes. All, all of us spiritually were orphans. None of us were born in Christ. Right? We were born separated by, by our sin, and we needed to be redeemed. And so even as Christians now, there are these places where our desires, our passions raise up, but so often we, we ignore the deeper longing, and we just go after what we, what we want and try to feed them ourselves. Now, what is it we're supposed to be asking? What is it they're supposed to be asking for? Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about the larger connection. But you, if you were here and you heard Wilson do a great job last week with chapter 3, uh, who is wise, who is understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So they're after wisdom. And one of the questions that Wilson asked was, do you want to look good or do you want to be good? And the question is very, very great one to ponder because so often we want wisdom so we look good. Now, wisdom. Like how many of you have thought lately, I want wisdom? And how about not just you guys? Like if you just think about the culture at large, does anybody really want wisdom? How about this word? Influencer. Hmm? Like everybody wants, they're an internet influencer. Oh, really? What do they do? Well, they wear a certain gown on the internet and everyone likes it and they have ads and they make money. They're influencing people. We all want influence. Everybody in this room, everybody on this planet has a a, a jury of their imagined sphere of whom they want to influence with their thoughts, their behaviors, their wits, their whatever it is. Hmm? Their toys, their, their, there's just so many things we want to do, our, our entertainment, our, our clothing, our, our ability to um, wow these people. And when we don't, or when someone else arrives with more, it creates an exposure of that desire. And what James is saying is these are the places, I've got great news for you, where you can count it all joy. Because here's your trial. You have this passion, and instead of finding it in God, you've aimed it at something else in order to get, spend it on yourself. And he's saying, hey, how about, how about now, instead of, like, getting angry and murdering a person, which I highly, I just tell you, please don't. Do not do that. At least on our, pro- no, don't do that. Um, you need to run to Christ. We're going to talk about the, the, the way you heal, but I'm wanting you right now, do you know these passions in you? Do you know your desires? 
I'm going to keep asking that question throughout the sermon, but I would like you to at least admit right now that what you think your desires are are just the surface level substitute. Whatever you would start with, I want lunch, you know, whatever it is. I want a job. I want to be married. I want my spouse to care for me. I want my children, whatever, whatever, whatever. Those are all beautifully, most of the time, good things, but there's still something deeper that you're really longing for. And until we find that deeper thing, those desires are going to go sort of unnoticed and they're going to wreak havoc because we're going to go after them without even admitting we have them. So point two then is position. That's passions. They're there. We know they're there. And we know that the root of them is not the problem. It's what we expend them on. But now let's look at our position that James talks about. Um, Again, I mentioned this in the opening. We are all created for this mystical union with God. And so when we aren't in that relationship to God as a human being, if you're a Christian and you're like, this is good for me. No, no, no. Like, if you're a Christian, what you believe about this entire planet and universe is that human beings without God are fractured and incredibly disrupted and angry and broken and and living out of their flesh. And the saddest thing is most of the Christians that I know and myself often do the same thing. We have the superpower, the Holy Spirit. We often live out of the flesh. And so what James is saying is you have this position in Christ that should alter what you do. Now, um, outside of the book of James, we see that in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul saying? It's no longer an I, it's a we. You and I were designed for that. This isn't some broken methodology. Sometimes, you know, hey, everything was going great and then the fall happened and so now we need the patch of the Holy Spirit, but the rest of the tire is pretty good. No. Like the patch is the first fruits of the Spirit. The rubber is degrading and and actually that, that Spirit covers the entire tire with this amazing material as that rubber continues to disintegrate and our longing is for that more and more to take root to where eventually like we are fully abiding in Christ with the presence of his spirit. It's not a fix. It's the solution to all of your deepest needs. Now, unbelief. Everyone, we struggle with unbelief. We hear these words and the the struggle is this double-mindedness, this unbelief, this I know it, I sort of say I believe it, but I struggle I think there's two things I want to say about unbelief to maybe help you see why we struggle so much. Number one, we often really do struggle to believe God loves us. You hear that a lot from here, I hope. God loves you. You've heard it this morning. He finds you breathtaking. He sent his son to rescue you, particularly you. Not kind of throwing it out there and seeing what you might do. If you're a Christian, he had you in the crosshair. He loves you, and he came for you. He said, Jesus That's one of ours. That's one of ours. But what about another aspect of of unbelief that I think is more prevalent in this passage is is this one. And I really want you to lean in on this one because I think it gets all of us. Okay. Okay, okay. God loves me. Thank you. But he can't meet my needs. Like, that's great on Sunday. That's cool when I die. I have all this stuff I want to do. And, like, 
He's not caring about that stuff. Does anyone struggle with that? He doesn't care if I go on my trip, if I pay my taxes, if I get over that diagnosis. He doesn't, you know, do you ever think that? What if, what if I trust in God, but things go poorly for me? That's unbelief. That's us saying, I can meet my needs and my desires better than God. And the word that just pops for me in this passage, and we're going to spend just a moment looking at it, is verse 5. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Is that on, on the, can we bring that verse up? Okay, just remember that verse. There is a better way to understand that verse. It's hard when you translate Greek into English, and so I'm not saying they did a bad job, but there are other versions like the NIV, the King James, others that have looked at the same original texts. But when you look at the Greek, it really the way it reads is the spirit who dwells in us yearns with jealousy over you, over us. The spirit is jealous for you. That is what that verse means. What does that sound like to you? That's the first unbelief. Does God love me? He's, he loves you so much, he's jealous. But what's he jealous of? When we turn from him to any other thing for fulfillment, which is what we're doing when our desires are at war. But the problem is, we think to ourselves... Aren't these things awesome? Like, isn't this fun, at least for a little while? And so we go toward them, and they're unfulfilling. And the Bible gives us a really amazing illustration of this in the prophets with Hosea. As you might know, some of the prophets had to do really hard things to get the point across. We just get to give illustrations like Seinfeld. That's what I do now. They, like, had to do crazy things. And one of the crazy things was Hosea had to marry Gomer, not Gomer Pyle, Gomer, a prostitute. He had to marry her, and they go through a couple of cycles where they marry and have children, and she leaves them, and she's up for sale as a slave. I mean, it's just, a, 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 and what's happening is God is saying, do you see how Hosea loves this woman? That's how I love you. That's the unbelief number one. God loves you. But what if God can't meet my needs? We just became Gomer. I'm on the sale block. I want to be a pro- I just want to stay in this lifestyle where I don't have a husband. No one likes me. I have no money. No. Like, like what, what, what that prophecy is telling us and what James is saying when he says, you adulterous people, is don't you understand choosing all these other lovers is like becoming a prostitute. It's going to ruin you. Nobody would look at Gomer and go, I see why you did that. Like, every one of us would go, oh, Eve, wake up. Here's real food. And God is saying, I have everything you need. What keeps us from folding into that? Can you feel it, a resistance? You ever play the what if, but what if game? I welcome you to do that. Like, that would be, that's a normal part of your spiritual life. Lord, I believe you can take care of my needs and my desires, but, but what about this? And pause. And say, Jesus, will you show me what I'm really wanting? I really want to be safe. I really want to be valued. I really want to be loved. What are your deepest, deepest longings? They're good. Bless those. God gave those to you. And 
he meets them, and it's beautiful. So what's the process? Our last point. Here's where James just turns up the heat, right? He first of all says this, he gives more grace. That's verse 6. Why would he say that? Because we've just been told, if we're tracking, me going after my desires apart from God is like adultery. I'm trying to fill spiritual needs with worldly things. That's what worldliness means. So often we hear the word worldliness and we think, it like, I got a tattoo or, you know, whatever. Nothing wrong with tattoos. Just don't say it like that. Um, worldliness for James, and I really, please hear me, is not just these bad technicolored sins. It's me living out my faith apart from God. It's like I'm going to use worldly methods, selfish ambitions, ambition, pride. I'm going to do things for me. I'm going to pray for wisdom and influence and maybe the ability to preach all because I want the power. I want to grow. That's worldliness. Lord, will you give me wisdom so my friends will want to have dinner at my house? You know, that's worldliness. And what he's saying is when I, when I ask correctly that I would serve the Lord with these things, that is a type of humility. And so the process then is we repent. And he says he gives more grace. I come to this place, I'm reading this passage, and I realize Jesus, his spirit is jealous for me. I have sinned. Well, you know, I feel the weight of it. And it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility. That's really the, the, the thrust of this sermon is humility. Um, just to, to remind you of where we began in chapter 1, he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God in faith. He will bring you wisdom. And then it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So there's this picture of the process of me coming to the end of myself and the end of my ability. In, in, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, but let the rich boast in their humiliation. Let me show you. And the rich in their humiliation. In other words, what's the rich person? A person who thinks I can solve my problem myself. I can handle this. That's me being rich. That's me being self-prideful. He's saying, no, I need to go to Jesus and say, I, I can't do it. I need you. And he exalts us in that process. And in our passage then, and before, he wraps all the way around by saying, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And at the very end he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's your process. So my question is this, have you identified your quarrels and your fights? These are the te steps. Have you looked at these desires underneath of them? And are you praying for God to give you wisdom? And here's what that means. Wisdom doesn't mean can you give me insight that I can magically know what to do. It's can you give me a profound trust that in this crazy difficult situation, you are the way to go. To love my neighbor is the way to go. To, to be humble is the way to go. Will you give me a conviction of that? And um, I just want to use an illustration from John 6 to say that Please hear me, when you don't do this, you're laboring. Like, we think that to, that to sort of take matters into our own hands is pretty helpful. That's our unbelief. And it's actually incredibly laborsome to not name your desires, to not show those to the Father, to not worship him and say, will you meet these needs? And so in John 6, just to remind you, Jesus has 
fed the 5,000. He's crossed the water. They track him down. And you remember what they say to him? Like, where did you go? And he says, labor not for the bread that perishes. Labor for the bread that endures for eternal life. Now, hear me. You've heard that a million times, so you just tuned me out. But do you hear the irony? They have just walked across the globe, like day's journey around Galilee, tracking down this missing Messiah thing. You know, they don't know who he is, and they think he's going to become the king. And they find him, and they're incredulous, and they're sweating, and they're ready to have that goose lay a golden egg. That's what they really want. He's like, you're laboring for the wrong thing. And so here's the point Jesus makes, and I would make here, when you don't take your desires to the Lord in humility, your deep longings, you're laboring to succeed at getting them yourself. And that's where all of your problems are coming from. Track your relational problems. Track your spiritual problems. You'll track them through this process of you trying to meet your own desires apart from Jesus. You're laboring. And the irony is you think you're not. You think you're taking it the easy way. This seems much better. I'll just, I'll find a savior who makes bread for me. And Jesus is like, stop it. Quit laboring. And so what James is telling us is to stop trying to solve all of our problems ourselves. We have just a moment left. I'm going to just read these verses because this is what repentance looks like. The setup is this. We are people, if, we're, if, we, if we agree with these words and we think of ourselves as part of this audience, we are people that have fights and quarrels churning in us. We have these unmet desires just churning. And so here, and yet, we're not running to the Lord, to the cross. We come to church, we sing the songs, we read our Bible, we believe the theology, but most of our lives are spent not doing that, not going to him, not pouring out our needs to him, right? We keep going to our own resources. So listen to James right here. This is the, the harshest language. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not his prescription for the rest of your life. This is his prescription for what repentance looks like when we see our longings, our deep desires, and we begin to recognize the harm we've created and trying to meet them in our own flesh. Example. You've heard the people on the, after, the ch- after some adult child has done something horrific, they interview the mom. I just want them to be happy. Have you ever seen that? Anyone? How many of our parents have said, I just want you to be happy? We're destroying children when we do that. Because what we're doing is we're saying, I want my child to be so enamored with me as a person. That's where I get my worth. That I'm not willing to say it's wrong to have like 48 candy bars. And then later, 48 beers. And then later, whatever, whatever, whatever. I just want them to love me. I need that so desperately. I won't say anything negative to my child. And guess what? We've ruined the child while being ruined in the process. That's just one example of the fact that what we're doing is we're using all of these things in our lives to get what only God can give us. Jesus loves you. 
Jesus is breathtaking, and he finds you breathtaking, and he's jealous for you, and he can meet your deepest needs. So will you take time to bring those deep needs to him? And at times when we do that, we will weep, we will mourn, we will um, find ourselves feeling wretchedness. But listen to the last verse of verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You will come through that lifted up. And you will come through that repentance, regular repentance, with a closeness, a drawing near to him, and him drawing near to you. And the devil will flee from you. Not forever, but for a moment, because you are walking with Jesus. Let's make that our goal this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we are so cherished by you. Lord, teach us to examine our deep longings. Lord, teach us to name them. And teach us to bring them to you. Forgive us, Lord, for buying the lie of the devil. He tricked our first parents into thinking you're not a good God. And so often, Lord, we don't bring our desires because we think you're going to shame us. We think you're going to scorn And yet you ask us to bring our deepest longings to you, as you are the one we deeply need. Holy Spirit, this can only be done if you open our eyes. Father, if there's anyone in this room who is not a Christian, I pray that you would, even now, open their eyes. Teach us all to taste and see that you are good. Let us run to you and draw near to you. Amen.